Let us turn in God's word this morning to Psalm 93 and Psalm 94. Psalm 93, the Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty, the Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself, the world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger, and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, shall he not, shall not he correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall not he know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. But who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence when I said, My foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous, and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring, bring upon them their own iniquity, and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, 
the Lord our God shall cut them off. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. May God bless the reading of his holy scriptures unto our hearts. It's on the basis of what we have read in the Psalms that we find the instruction of the head of our catechism, Lord's Day 48. Lord's Day 48, which is the second petition? Thy kingdom come, that is, rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee. And also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place wherein thou shalt be all in all. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, we consider this morning the second petition of the perfect prayer that Jesus gave unto the church. This petition, similar to the first petition, is concerned about God. The beginning of this model prayer does not start with petitions regarding man or man's place on this earth, but the first three petitions are all concerned about Jehovah, Jehovah's name, Jehovah's kingdom, and Jehovah's will. Second petition, specifically, thy kingdom come. The matter of God's kingdom is a subject about which there is found much confusion in this world. I remember well in high school and college, attended a Christian high school and a Christian college, and in high school and college, the teachers and professors would talk about God's kingdom frequently. They would emphasize to us as students that we are to be kingdom builders. And they would tell us that it is their duty as teachers and professors to equip us to be kingdom builders. Now those are noble thoughts of being kingdom builders and equipping others for fulfilling that task. But the question is, what is meant by God's kingdom? What do you mean when one says that he's going to go out and do kingdom work. Oftentimes the impression that is left with the phrase of doing kingdom work is that it consists of things that are very physical. That one is doing kingdom work when they are giving to the poor, contributing to those who have less than what I have been blessed with. Or kingdom work 
consists perhaps of going to a place, perhaps a third world nation, where there is poverty, and then assisting in the physical construction of homes or of worship places for those who are less blessed. And then, and then that is to be considered as kingdom work. And that's not to say that one ought not to care for the poor, and that one ought not to assist as one is able in caring for others. But does that mean then that one ought to feel guilt? As though one is not a kingdom builder? If one does not travel to a foreign nation to assist in putting up a physical structure? What is the kingdom? See, there can be great confusion and differences of opinion even among Christians about what the idea of the kingdom is. So let us then this morning examine according to God's word and as God's word is summarized and confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is the meaning, the idea of God's kingdom? And then may it be the case as well that we not only seek to grow in having an accurate understanding of the nature of the kingdom, but may it also be this, that we have worked within our hearts by the Holy Spirit an increased fervency in praying, Thy kingdom come. It's not just about having a correct understanding of the kingdom, but it's also about desiring the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. First, we'll consider that this is a spiritual kingdom. Second, a coming kingdom. Third, a triumphant kingdom. What generally is the idea of a kingdom? Speaking now even of an earthly kingdom. When one evaluates a a kingdom, you can look at a kingdom from several different perspectives, several different things that must be found in order for there to be a kingdom. But if we were to ask, what is the most important part of the kingdom? What would our answer be? What must there be if there is going to be a kingdom? And if that is lacking then there is no kingdom. The Old Testament Israelites would have understood readily the answer to that question. What must there be in order to be a kingdom? What is the most basic, fundamental part of it? The king. The king. The kingdom is not first and foremost about those who are citizens or subjects within the kingdom. The kingdom is not first and foremost about what, what comforts 
what blessings are enjoyed, what riches are found within the walls of that kingdom. But the kingdom is first and foremost about the king. Old Testament Israel would have understood that very clearly. What power the king had, what influence the king had over Old Testament Israel. If God gave unto Israel a righteous, God-fearing king, then the influence of that king was such that generally the nation followed that king in the faithful worship of God. But then the opposite was true as well. If there was a king who worshipped idols, a king who did not worship Jehovah God in the temple, then Israel generally followed that king in false worship. So what's found in a kingdom, number one, a king? But then second, there must also be citizens in the kingdom. There must be people who are subject unto the power, the rule, and the authority of the king. The king depends upon the presence and the obedience of the citizens. Speaking now of an earthly kingdom. There might be an individual who claims that he is king. An individual who claims that he has great power and great influence. But if there are no citizens who are subject to the authority of that individual, then that person has no kingdom at all. And so for there to be a kingdom, there must be citizens who are, lo- who are loyal unto the king. They must submit their will unto the sovereignty of that king. They must be willing to give themselves for that king and even give themselves in, give themselves in service unto that great king. So what's found in a kingdom? Number one, a king. Number two, citizens. Number three, there must be boundaries that make up a kingdom. There has to be some way to distinguish between one kingdom and the neighboring kingdom. If there is no boundary, if there is no wall, but the foreign kingdom, which might well be hostile unto this kingdom, if the citizens of that foreign kingdom can simply march into this kingdom and seek to hurt or destroy or even kill the citizens of that kingdom, then that is no kingdom at all. Again, think of Old Testament Israel and how important these boundaries were to them. Boundaries of Israel were not static, but these boundaries would fluctuate with time. If Israel had a a king that was weaker, a king that did not have great military strength, then the surrounding enemy nations would attack and the walls or the boundaries of Israel would shrink in size. But then if God gave unto them a righteous king who also was skilled in 
the military and leading in battle, then the boundaries of that kingdom would be enlarged. And as well, not only would it be the case that they were enlarged, but they were also solidified so that the enemy nations did not even dare to attack Israel. How important then are these boundaries for the safeguarding of the citizens within the kingdom? So understanding then something generally of the idea of a kingdom, then specifically what is meant by God's kingdom? Well, there must be a king. Who is the king? God is pleased to rule his kingdom through Jesus Christ. Psalm 93 Verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. Without God ruling through Jesus Christ, there would be no kingdom. God's kingdom is not, first of all, about the citizens who are found within the kingdom. God's kingdom is not, first and foremost, about what our desires would be, what comforts we would want as citizens within the kingdom. But the kingdom is, first and foremost, about God. He is the almighty creator of the kingdom. He is the infinitely wise ruler of this kingdom. He is the sovereign over this kingdom. He is the one who rules this kingdom in and through his son, Jesus Christ. As God raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the grave, and then Jesus ascended up into heaven, and he sits now at God's right hand, God has given unto his Son, Jesus Christ, all power and dominion. We are not, in this second petition, asking God to form or create a kingdom. God already is king. And God has a kingdom. Later on, In this perfect prayer, Jesus Christ, in the conclusion, teaches us to pray for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. So we are not here asking God to create a kingdom, but we are praying that God's kingdom come. Who then are the citizens in God's kingdom? And this is where confusion can come in, in one's understanding about the kingdom. We may speak generally of God being the sovereign one over everything that he has created. God is king over the sun, moon, and stars. He holds them up in their courses above. God is sovereign over the 
beasts of the field. God is sovereign over all of mankind, righteous and unrighteous, elect and reprobate. The wicked are under his control, and even the devil cannot so much as utter a word except God give him power and strength to do it. And so we may, and we do, speak generally of God's sovereign control over all things. But when we speak now more specifically of the matter of God's kingdom, and ask now the question, who are the citizens of God's kingdom? We must understand that there is a distinction between God's sovereign control over all things and, on the other hand, the rule of God's grace. And when we speak of the citizens of the kingdom, we must understand that it is only those who have come under the rule of God's grace who are the citizens of God's kingdom. The kingdom you understand, is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's the kingdom that Jesus Christ came into this world to establish on the foundation of His own righteousness. The Scriptures speak oftentimes of the kingdom as being the kingdom of heaven. When we think of who are going to be the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we understand, of course, that Not every single person head for head upon this earth is going to be found in heaven. But only those who have come under the rule of God's grace are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. These then are the citizens, those who have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. These are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's those who willingly submit themselves to the rule and the authority of God. It's those who are loyal unto God. The citizens consist of those who give themselves unto God, who give themselves in daily service unto God. The kingdom does not consist of those who are disobedient impenitently to God, of those who forsake God, who want nothing to do with God and His church in this world. They do not want to be in God's kingdom. They are quite content to be outside the kingdom. And what then are the boundaries of God's kingdom? If God's kingdom is spiritual, if His kingdom is the rule of God's grace, then you understand that we cannot speak in physical terms of the boundaries of God's kingdom. There is no wall that physically distinguishes where the kingdom is found and where the kingdom is not found. There's not even a line that could be drawn in the sand that could distinguish 
between kingdom members and those outside? What then delineates where the kingdom of God is found? Is it not this? It's where the antithesis is found. It's where the kingdom of light comes into contact with the kingdom of darkness. It's where the kingdom of righteousness comes into contact with the kingdom of unrighteousness. And because these kingdoms are polar opposites, there is enmity, there is strife between these kingdoms, and thus there is the antithesis. You understand that there are enemies, many enemies to the kingdom of God. Oftentimes these enemies to the kingdom of God are powerful individuals. They are in positions where they have the ability to physically hurt the members of God's kingdom and God's church. They make the place of God's church in this world very, very small. Psalm 94, verse 4. How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. They are opposed unto God's kingdom exactly because God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is because God's kingdom, as God's kingdom is manifest in this world, consists of the church and the church institute. That those who belong to the kingdom of darkness despise the kingdom of God. If Jesus Christ's kingdom had been a physical kingdom, if Jesus Christ had come into this world and had promised unto his followers that he would give them deliverance from physical adversity, deliverance from physical trials, if Jesus had come and had promised unto his many followers that they would be given wealth and physical prosperity, then the devil would have had no reason to tempt Jesus Christ to bow down. And then the devil would give unto Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. If Jesus Christ had come proclaiming that his kingdom was physical, then Judas would never have found it necessary to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If the kingdom today consisted of advancements in technology, of freedom from suffering or persecution, then the whole world would line up asking for citizenship in this kingdom. But the kingdom is the rule of God's grace in your heart. The kingdom is found 
right in your soul. It's a kingdom that belongs to God. It's a kingdom that ultimately will be brought to perfection in heaven. And it is for this kingdom that we pray, come, thy kingdom, come. The catechism teaches about how this kingdom comes. Answer 123, thy kingdom come that is rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee. Rule us. That's the petition that the citizen of the kingdom makes. That's the first petition that we make in understanding thy kingdom come rule us. Who wants this? Who wants to be a citizen in that type of kingdom where you're going to ask somebody else to exercise their will over you? Rule me. How contrary this is to the thought of Western culture where one clings fiercely to rights, to independentism, where it's imagined that happiness comes in the way of freedom from rules. So long as I have the liberty to do what I want to do, then I will be happy. And here the Catechism teaches us to pray, Rule us. Rule us by thy word and by thy spirit. This request can only be made by one who already is a citizen of the kingdom of God. Someone who is outside of the kingdom does not have the ability or the desire to send this request to God's throne of grace, rule me by thy word and by thy spirit. It is only because God has already given unto us a heart, a soft heart, which is teachable, that we then are able to go to God and ask him to rule us. Psalm 94, verse 12. Who's the happy man? The blessed individual. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. This is a request here that God rule us by his word and by his spirit. The word which refers to the the never-changing, never-ending revelation of God to His people. It's a word which has remained the same throughout all ages of His kingdom. It's a word which governed in the Garden of Eden 
Adam and Eve, a word which ruled over Abraham as Abraham sojourned out into a country which he should after receive for an inheritance. It's a word that ruled over David and over Solomon, over the prophets whom God sent unto Old Testament Israel. And it's a word that continues to rule over us today. His word is the objective standard. His word is, as it were, the law of the land. His word distinguishes truth from lie. His word distinguishes righteousness from unrighteousness, delineates between what is good and what is evil. And then we pray not only for the word, but also for the Holy Spirit. And while it is the word that reveals unto us truth, the Spirit is He who teaches truth unto us and who guides us into truth. Whereas the Word is that which sets forth good versus evil, the Spirit is the one who convicts of good versus evil. Whereas the Word is etched in the law on the two tables of stone which never change. The Spirit is the one who presses that living Word upon the fleshy hearts of God's people. The Word sets forth the objective standard that governs over the citizens of the kingdom, and the Spirit is He who applies that Word unto our lives. So we pray that God would rule us both by His Word and by His Spirit. And then how else do we pray for the coming kingdom? The second part of answer 123, preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against Thee. We are in this petition asking God that He would preserve His church against all evil. Sometimes evil comes against God's church from the outside. There are the surrounding nations of Israel that attacked God's people time after time after time. And so we are pre- pr- praying that God would preserve us against the threats that come from outside. Protect us as a church from worldliness. Protect us as a church from being caught up in materialism. Protect us from having an earthly concept of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But then if we think as well about the preservation of the church, recall there were not only threats that came from the outside, but there also were threats that came from within. Think of Absalom, David's own son, who managed to lead a rebellion against his father, who was sneaky, 
who convinced people to join his cause and then led in schism, setting father against son. There are within the church institute wolves in sheep's clothing. We don't always recognize immediately the presence of the wolves in sheep's clothing. And so we pray for discernment that God would give unto us wisdom to protect us, preserve thy church from internal threats. Guard us from schism, from division, which would rend the body of Christ apart. Guard us from the threat of false doctrine. False doctrine is violence, to use the language of the catechism, violence, which would exalt itself against thee. There is the violent teaching that God is not the king sovereign in salvation, but that man may choose for himself whether or not he wants to be a member of God's church. There is the violent teaching that Jesus and man must cooperate together in order for man to be saved from his sins. There is the violent and false teaching of common grace, which teaches that there is yet some good that remains in fallen man. There is the violent and false teaching of the conditional covenant, saying that God has put you in the covenant, but now if you're going to stay in that covenant, if you will be maintained in that covenant, it is up to you to remain in that covenant. And there is the violent and false teaching that man does not have to labor, rendering unto God works of gratitude for the salvation which God has worked in man. There is the violent and false teaching which would deny it is man's duty to, quote, work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. And so our prayer for the church is that God would preserve her, preserve the kingdom from anything that would attack her. Preserve and increase. Preserve and increase Thy church destroy the works of the devil. The Christian prays for church growth. There's a sense in which we pray for numerical growth. Believing that God's church is great, as many as the sand on the seashore in multitude. But knowing that not all of the elect have been brought unto a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we pray that God would add unto His church 
church, such as should be saved. To pray thy kingdom come is to pray for the cause of missionary work. To pray thy kingdom come is to pray for God to increase his church through the birth of children born to believing parents. But then as well to pray for the increase of the church is to pray for her spiritual development. It's a prayer that the members would grow in the grace and knowledge of God. A prayer that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That we would be able to comprehend with all saints what are the dimensions of God's love for us. It's a prayer that the Holy Spirit would be at work in us, that He would quicken us more and more, that He would transform us into the glorious image of God's only begotten Son. It's a prayer that for as long as we are on this earth, that God would prepare us for our home in heaven. This kingdom, we believe, is triumphant. It triumphs not without, but exactly through warfare. Always there's warfare. As the kingdom of light has contact with the kingdom of darkness. The catechism speaks of that warfare. Destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee. And also destroy all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word. God's kingdom always has come in the way of conflict. Already in Genesis 3, immediately after the fall into sin, God came to Adam and Eve, and God pronounced unto them that mother promise. And as He gave unto them that mother promise, He assured them that there would be conflict. This enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Throughout all of history, then we see the fulfillment of God's Word come to pass as there is hatred and warfare between these two seeds. This warfare culminated in the cross, where there the kingdom of light had contact with the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of light fought against that kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of light overcame darkness by drinking the cup of God's wrath for the sins of His people. God's kingdom triumphs through warfare. May God grant us to know then that His kingdom is triumphant. For Jesus Christ has established the foundation of righteousness. From our point of view, 
It does not always seem that way, does it? That God's kingdom is triumphant. At times it seems as though the kingdom of darkness prevails. All around us is the world and the power of the world, which seems only to increase in might in comparison to the power of the church. And now we say God's kingdom is triumphant. And even closer to home, how often are we not disappointed when we personally fall into the same besetting sins time and time again. And now we say God's kingdom is triumphant. Our focus by nature tends to be upon the things of this earth and the apparent success of the fallen kingdom. Psalm 93, or Psalm 94, verse 3. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? That's the question that the earnest child of God asks at times. How long will the wicked triumph? Our confidence is and must be that God uses even evil for the good of His kingdom. There is suffering. There is that cup of suffering that must be filled up. And God is pleased to use the suffering of His righteous citizens to fill up that which remains behind in that cup. May our confidence be, Psalm 94, verse 14, for the Lord will not cast off His people, neither will He forsake His inheritance. Verse 22, the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we are humbled by thy word, which teaches us that we are by grace citizens in thy kingdom. We are less than the least and do not deserve such status. We thank thee for drawing us unto thyself. We thank thee for thy word. Thou comfort us by thy Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen.